All right, I want to welcome everybody to the Sacramento Charismatic. I am your host, Luke Garrity, and uh, we're going to be jumping into a really fun topic today, uh, the subject of baptism, uh, water baptism. And so I have a guest, Kristen Daly-Mosier, who is a theologian and a uh, just a really great thinker, and we've, we've crossed paths a few times in... Uh, scholarly circles, I guess, is the, the, the way that we'd say that. Um, but thanks for taking the time to be a part of the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. You are a, uh, I, I guess, you know, for, there's some people who uh, in the Vineyard Movement, which I'm a part of, know who you are, um, you know, but I, kind of the goal of the podcast was to broaden, um, broaden out because there's a whole lot of people who are coming from the charismatic tradition that are exploring the sacramental liturgical world. And then I know an increasing amount of people who grew up in very liturgical sacramental spaces who are trying to figure out the charismatic thing too. And um, so it's kind of been like this, this uh, pursuit of the, the intersection of those worlds, which then means that we have to talk about uh, missiology and pneumatology and ecclesiology. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I was thinking about um, some of the female theologians that I really have loved uh, reading and interacting with it, you were one of the people that, that, uh, that came to mind. So I'm just so, so glad that you'd be willing to, uh, to be a guest. Um, but for anybody who doesn't know you, like maybe just with a few minutes here, just what are some of the things that are important to know about you? You know, I know you're married and you have a cat, maybe you have cats, but what else? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um yes yes uh our, our our cat is um he's basically a small tiger uh very ferocious and <laughs> uh we are those crazy people who um have put a harness on him and taken him outside um oh, you're one of them i know i know it's a little weird it's i'm not gonna lie it's a little we're not weird, judging you but we're not judging you yeah <laughs> yes um, <laughs> no, so I, um, I, I grew up in the Seattle area, which I never thought would necessarily be an important thing. However, um, I have come to realize that I, it's, it's important me, for me to base my work here and do theology very specifically out of this context. Mm. And so, um, after doing, um, seminary, got my MDiv at Fuller Northwest, um, which sadly no longer exists. <laughs> I, I heard um, about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, but an amazing, you know, amazing uh, journey. And so I um, started a doctoral program in the Chicago area in 2015 at Garrett Evangelical Theological mm. Seminary, um, which is just, it, it's been an excellent place to to be able to kind of um, cross some disciplines and do uh, some exploration and, and mixing and mingling that you don't always get an opportunity to do um, at, you know, different institutions, depending upon how they're set up. Yeah. Um, and so I am now attempting to dissertate and <laughs> come up with a constructive project that is watershed oriented. Um, it's, you know, looking at baptismal theology, but it is fundamentally a theology of water and spirit 
um, and really focusing on, like, really just trying to ride the edge of sacramental theology and systematic theology, um, and you know, using the the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan as paradigmatic for for that. Um, so I, yeah, so you know, being in Seattle, doing this work here in the uh, Cedar River watershed is where I'm located. Um, also on the land of Duwamish and Suquamish people traditionally. Um, I am basically trying to mix and mingle a number of different strands into the work, which gets mm. uh, sometimes complex. <laughs> yeah. And so if I start to wander off in, you know, seemingly random trails, you know, feel free to, to, to just, say a little like so how does that relate to baptism again (laughs) (laughs) no i i think that's what what i loved about your work though um you know it's kind of funny when you think about like theological methodology um so i my mdiv i don't think i even i mean i knew that that was a thing but um it was just was not a big part of my my mdiv process and so it wasn't until i went back to grad school that i was exposed to methodology and like started realizing mm-hmm. that there's that that's really important and probably should have had more <laughs> classes on that. Um, but I've, I really have loved the um, like, I, I always talk about when I think about my theological methodology, it's really, I want to be interdisciplinary. And I like that about your work is that you are doing things that are, that are tracking with a lot of different um, really important um I guess resources and and references and and disciplinary approaches. So that's actually why I was uh, really excited about having you on the pod. I'd be really looking forward to this because I think we've been planning it for what a month and a half or two or something like that. So um, something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, so I'm really excited about that. Um, so you, so being in Seattle, you know, I think outside of Seattle in the evangelical charismatic world, all we hear or we used to hear a lot about was how it's a very postmodern, um, no longer churched, very deconstructive, um, you know, anti-established, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's probably even more stuff on the news now <laughs> due to the political climate. Um, but uh, what, yeah. what do you, what do you love about, yeah, <laughs> we'll skip right over that. What do you, uh, I guess, what do you love about Seattle? And then secondarily, how does that cultural context, um, how does that fit into why you you think it's important that you're there in addition to just the you know the fact that you're around water because obviously you know it's right there on the on the ocean it's yeah it, well yes and, and no there's um yeah so we are surrounded by water um which makes things like uh transit incredibly difficult yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um gosh i you know, but a lot of it is simply the bias of having grown up here. Um, my dad was in fishery science, so I grew up kind of um, tagging along with him when he needed to uh, check on a stream and, you know, do his research for fish habitat and, uh, you know, check on the conditions and, and whatnot. So um, I was raised, it, and I grew up in the Presbyterian church. So. Mm-hmm. Um, everything was very intellectual (laughs) basically like faith was intellectual um the sacraments we practiced uh, we didn't even call them sacraments you know communion you got once a month um there there was a cup and a little wafer that got passed around um and so you know the the religion was 
there. And it was an important, um, I, I think there was some important scaffolding that, that went into place. Um, but at the same time, in, in this area, you are surrounded by trees that are, you know, four or five stories high. And the, the, the evergreen forests are, they're dense, they're um, entangled with berries, they're, um, you know, wet oftentimes, especially in, in spring and fall hiking, um, though less so now thanks to climate change. Um, but <laughs> there, there's, the visual world is such a presence. It's its own character in a lot of ways. And, you know, the, the clouds and the, the sea, um, so Puget Sound being right, right here, um, also known as the Southern Salish Sea, have, I'm starting to kind of shift some of my language um, as as a speaking methodologically as a decolonial move. Um, you know, just just changing some of the the language that that we use. Um, you know, you're just you're surrounded by these characters that are creatures, and and, and it's water and it's elemental, and and so that really starts to sort of play on the imagination and and mm -hmm. I think for for you know turning to questions of talking about God you you almost can't not engage in the language of the natural world yeah um, I think yeah. That's, a, that's like a that's like a big part of you know it seems like the push toward from the from the charismatic um, slash evangelical world, who's kind of like, I mean, there's a lot of different reasons as to why we are being attracted to liturgical slash sacramental stuff. Um, but I think a big part of it, once you do, is that you start to realize that a lot of like the, um, I guess the quote unquote Gnostic or the separation between the physical and the spiritual has been really detrimental to both the both just being biblically faithful, but also to the life of the church. Um, you know, like seeing that physical things actually matter. And then you become more aware of the world, this sacramental space that we live in. Um, it's mm -hmm. funny. I, I just, man, I'm, this is, I don't know if you know, but I, I fly fish quite a bit and I also am a fly fishing guide. So I do probably, I'm going to guess anywhere from 80 to nine uh, to hundred days on the river e every year, easily. So mm -hmm. I really need to have your dad on to find out about those fly fishing situation in uh, Washington. <laughs> if he's, if he's still uh, but yeah, um, but, but I do, I, I was just thinking about this. Um, I had uh, guided on Friday and Saturday. And as I was on the river, I just was meditating on how there's, it's such a, it's a sanctuary. I mean, that's the only way I can describe that space for me is that it's one of the most um, you know, spiritually formative practices I have. I honestly, I think fly fishing and being on the river has been what's kept me uh, through 2020. You know, that was like mm -hmm. the one saving grace was like, I'll, I'll be on the river this week, you know? Yeah. So I, I think what you're saying is really uh, fascinating for a lot of, a lot of uh, people who are kind of in this intersection between these, these traditions, because it seems mm -hmm. like um, we have to start paying more attention, not only theologically, biblically, but also, as you were saying and kind of hinting at, because just our desire and concern for create, you know, creation care and wanting to be more um, sensitive to what um, the past atrocities, both culturally and how colonialism has been pretty bad for a lot of people, 
that's mildly. We're yeah. we're saying that on the eve of of the royal uh, interview. <laughs> I don't know if you watched part of that. I was just oh, like, no. oh, oh man. <laughs> I watched a little bit and I was like, I'm really glad I don't have a king and a queen. I, that's all I can say right now. It's basically it. So. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, there, gosh, there's, there's so much there. Uh, <laughs> I I guess too when when. What's also interesting to in, in terms of things to, to kind of break down is um, is also this notion that either you go to church or you worship at the Church of REI. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the, the things that I'm finding really generative here in the Seattle area, Pacific Northwest in general, um, is that for... First of all, you have to very meaningfully engage with the church. Um, mm. If you're at all like, I, I don't know, um, <laughs> unless you unless you're you're okay with with just kind of staying ensconced and not really engaging with the world. Um, and there are a lot of traditions that you know are still very much like, well, it's just all about us, and as long as we're saved, mm. then you know, with, yeah. other people can figure that out for themselves. Um, but you know, there's so many people who I meet in this region who are just, who feel really torn about, well, I, I love God and I, um, listen to popular secular music or, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, cause that used to be a thing. Um, or, you know, I love God and yeah. you know, there's this whole other realm that you know parts of the church have have tried to close off or or just Mm -hmm. say like no that's that's not really okay um you know like re embracing the fact that that martin luther loved beer um you know that's that's a fairly recent thing for like especially um in in more uh, conservative traditions, like what do you mean you can go have a beer after church? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, that's like that's this true. Like evangelicals have kind of like rediscovered because I so I went to an, uh, a Presbyterian seminary, so I like that was common. Whiskey and beer was like not an <laughs> issue, you know. Uh, but I yeah. but I grew up in in vine- vineyard charismatic circles, and so I just remember I was like, whoa, <laughs> like what is going on here? These guys, yeah. these guys and these gals have discovered something, you know, but. <laughs> that is fascinating that that recent recent um i guess yeah discovery or we, recent maybe um focus amongst a lot of uh a lot of people is is definitely happening um so with you know with your i think what what i when i first was reading um i think an article on on the uh the women in theology.org uh you were talking about some of your research you you were um, I, what I found so fascinating is you were talking about what it's like to do, uh, to dissertate in the midst of uh, COVID-19. And I just was like, I hadn't even thought about what would that look like? Because uh, like, for instance, textual critics who travel all over the world trying to find, you know, textual um, scripts in monasteries. Uh, what would that look like when you can't travel outside of the U.S. Mm-hmm. because no country will allow us to come into their country? Um, you know, so <laughs> right. I saw so it got me just I was like, oh, man, I, I'm curious. So before we jump into maybe talking more about baptism and I, I, I want I'd love to just pick your brain and have you share a little bit about what is 
what are you, uh, uh, I guess, seeing about water baptism in light of your work on water and on theology and, and whatnot? But um, what what has that looked like? Yeah, what's it? What you know? What's mm-hmm. researching and writing and and because tra- you were traveling a little bit, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's yes. that look like? Yeah, so um, that particular piece um, in women in theology, um, I was reflecting on. Um, what, how a colleague and I, um, so we're, we're working on a research project where we, we traveled to Flint, Michigan. And our, our question, um, has been, you know, what, what does it mean? What are some of the implications and what does it practically look like to baptize in, in the context of toxic water? Or like when when in, when a community is inundated with toxic water, um, what does that do? Does that and and how does that start to affect um, maybe like theological reflection on on that that practice of baptism? Because um, you know we you hear you read about Flint and you hear stories. Even still, there are kids who refuse to drink water from a water fountain who even continue even still like to this day have issues bathing Mm -hmm. because they um you know at the height of the crisis um the water would come out and and it would burn their skin and um so you know if if baptism is the bath the sacramental bath and you have kids who don't want to get in the water. Like, what is? What do you do with that? What What does mm. that mean? Um, I have no answers. Just to be clear. Uh, <laughs> so, conducting this this trip and and trying to engage um, with with clergy, like we were reaching out to clergy. Uh, ended up, you know, kind of sometimes just doing a drive-by to different churches just to see mm-hmm. if anyone was there, which it was COVID. So oftentimes there was like virtually no one there Yeah, <laughs> um, or maybe just one or two folk. Um, no, and they then, were virtually there. They just weren't physically there. Correct. Everybody's virtually, virtually present. That's the, <laughs> that's what we called our services, virtual services. No one was in their in, building. Right. <laughs> In some cases, that's true. However, yeah. with some communities, they're not yet virtual. Yeah. You know, like if, if you're someplace where your internet connection is yeah. half-hearted at best, yeah. and, you know, you're just not, it, like, there's still, like, so many communities around did the you, United States. But did you find that in Flint like that? Yeah, yeah. There were, um, that's, that's interesting. My wife is from yeah. uh, just really close to there, so I've been to Flint a lot. Um, oh, yeah, okay. that's, that's fascinating because we've we've challenged. That's been a challenge with um, with certain uh, age demographics, you know, like the online Facebook mm-hmm. thing, you know, thing. But but that's interesting. So yeah, school or uh, churches in communities where they're on dial. I mean, legitimately on very low bandwidth uh, internet, you can't even upload your service nor download it. So that's right. so you were uh, discovering church communities that were that were facing that as a challenge in addition to having toxic water yes (laughs) wow and i mean by the time so most of the water is like it's taken care of you know it's it's very heavily monitored at this point um Mm -hmm. and 
you know, a number of the clergy who or that we were able to connect with mentioned that, you know, they themselves believe that the city has taken care of the, the problem, um, but there are still those vestiges and people continue to mm. not trust the water. And, you know, oftentimes um, they, there are still a number of, of people who, who need and, and rely on bottled water, um, even though the, it, the situation has mm-hmm. changed dramatically <laughs> since, wow. since the height of it. Um, but yeah, so, so as I was, you know, so as we're, we're going through the research process and, you know, setting up our, how, well, how is this actually going to look like for us to logistically go someplace? Uh, it's already a vulnerable community. So we certainly don't want to be tracking in anything, uh, with us when we go visit people <laughs> and, you know, making sure that, um, we keep ourselves protected, we keep them protected, um, you know, so all of that goes into this process. Um, and in in some ways, in some ways, it, w- it was a little bit more difficult to, to do. But at the same time, it, it was what I would consider an extension of um, this notion of reflexivity, mm-hmm. where as you go forward in your research, you have points where you pause and you reflect and say, you know, and, and, and just check some of the power differentials and just check some of the dynamics of what's happening. Um, are, we, um, are, are, are we seeking to be mutually beneficial uh, with and among the people who are working? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, finding ways to have the, the community itself that we go to speak into our research rather than us mm-hmm. just being you know, supposed flies on the wall or interviewers yeah. who mm-hmm. just take notes and yeah. Cause that, that model of ethnography is dying out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, that's, that's yeah, like I said, and so for anybody, uh, you know, who's watching, you can see there's a link there to your, to that website, uh, women in theology.org. Um, and you, you're easy, it's easy to find your, your articles there. Uh, but that, that article, you really fascinating for people who are interested in that. I mean, it was, it was like, re, it was just interesting to read like, Oh, I hadn't even thought about what that would look like, you know? Um, yeah. I, I mean, I have so many thoughts about, uh, about the, that, w- the water situation there. Um, tell me what you, t- okay. This has been crazy. If I'm wrong, if, if this is crazy train, uh, you, you please say so, but, you know, one of the things that I've noticed with the sacramental theology and maybe taking more of a sacramental approach, well, in taking a sacramental approach, is that I no longer look at water as just water, but as there's something um, sacramental or pneumatological or however you want to mm-hmm. um, say it, because um, it's interesting how um, with with the Eucharist, I, I had this, one of the f- most pneumatologically enriching moments in my personal life, you know, was when I was in uh, the country of Nepal and we traveled to this region called Chitwan and it was, you know, we drove through the Himalayas for like eight hours and we went to this small church um, in the middle of nowhere. And there was maybe 75 people crammed into this room. Everybody was sitting and we got there and they were just about to receive communion at the time. And at that, at that juncture, I had 
like discovered the Eucharist in a sense theologically, and I and I had I had been like awakened to how central it should be, and it it was for me. Uh, but I had like a so I was kind of on that high horse a little bit, you know, theologically. <laughs> You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, 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 you know, I was at that point where it's like, you only do it monthly. Are you even a Christian? Um, not quite, but I was, I was close to that. And and I'll never forget though, because the, the pastor of the church, uh, you know, invited us to come forward and to lead communion, um, you know, deeply honored to do that. And I walked up and I kid you not, he broke out a bag of Doritos and that was the host. And then he he took um, a spoonful of grape Kool Aid, but the Nepali version of it, and and made a. And I just was like, my my world was somewhat imploding, and yet, and this is the part that I think where uh, I just felt like the Lord was teaching me some things is that it was one of the most sacramentally. I didn't have that language at the time per se, but the most mm-hmm. charismatic experiences I'd ever had too. I mean, when we received the the bread and the cup, we, we, I mean, I sensed and discerned the presence of God in a very unique way. And so it, it, it began to maybe even deepen my sacramental theology in the sense of how I do think that God through the spirit can, can, um, turn these symbolic, um, you know, tokens into God's presence. Right. So with Mm -hmm. water, um, it's, it's interesting because like, do you think that, um, the way that some of those churches are wrestling with it is probably all over the map, but you know, if it is a sacramental thing, so someone does get baptized in water, that is, I don't know, not probably the best water, you know, given let's say 2018 or 17, uh, when this, when they were getting baptized, uh, how were churches wrestling with that? You know, with, with the, mm-hmm. the water, I mean, are they, is it pretty across the board? I mean, are they, some of them seeing a more sacramental charismatic, miraculous, supernatural thing that might happen to the water or other people saying, let's go get a bunch of bottles of water, pour it into a bathtub and do it that way. Like, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Um, so the, the folks who've been able to connect with thus far, um, we've heard very pragmatic approaches (laughs) and (laughs) (laughs) yeah, a lot of pastors, a lot of pastors. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> um, so there, let's see here. Um, a lot about the water or just not, not baptizing at all. Um, mm. And also like a lot of um, like just testing of the water, like, mm. you know, for the chemical makeup and, and whatnot. Mm. So um yeah, I think what was more interesting was to kind of hear how either churches have held off entirely mm. and have then had to kind of pivot and describe, well, this this event, this this moment of baptism, it is a significant event. However, you are still saved even without having or mm-hmm. even without undergoing a water baptism. So we've heard, we've heard how some decided to, you know, well, I can't, I don't feel comfortable um, baptizing or I have no means of baptizing or, um, you know, we're just, we're just not going to go there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. But there's still that pastoral impulse of, 
you know, how do you, um, how do you make sure that that congregants know that the people know that they are forgiven, that they are sanctified, that they, you know, that they, that salvation has truly come to them, even without partaking in in the ritual. Um, so that was, I think, that was one of the the really interesting responses. Hmm. Um, and do then there's, do they tie that to uh, like you know in the COVID. Um, era of the the very beginning of I think that there were a lot of churches that were not doing you know virtual communion or having uh, home home groups do communion. They were connecting the non receiving of the Eucharist to lament and and really you know mm-hmm. kind mm-hmm. of ha- did you see any of that too where there was a connection to like we're going to go through a season of not having water baptisms and it's connected to this corporate sense of lament or is that more because you probably saw that a little bit with the Eucharist, right? Through the COVID. Yes. Yes. In fact, my church, um, we went for a long time without having uh, a a Eucharist, Um, Mm -hmm. which when you go from weekly to waiting several months, Mm -hmm. it's kind of a shock. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I did not, hear it in in the context of flint i did not hear um you know refraining from from baptism connected to lament explicitly Mm. um trying to think if there was anything that would be because it was also i mean (laughs) lament wouldn't quite have been appropriate in that regard um because as we've come to discover it was such a blatant act of environmental racism. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And so, you know, why, why would the, the, the people who, who were, you know, the victims of this Mm. event, and I I don't like to use that that word victim, um, but you know, lament just would not quite have been the right response. I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that makes sense. And I do think victim is an actual, from what I have read, it seems like that might actually be a pretty accurate uh, assessment, right? I mean, it was a very long time. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember, so I, 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 as anybody who listens, I listen to a lot of hip hop and I was listening to uh, a podcast by one of my favorite underground hip hop uh, MCs. And he, he, like, his thing was, he'd be like, and Flint still doesn't have clean water and it was like years mm-hmm. after that mm-hmm. you know was on national te- television national news and now you never i mean i'm this is such a great conversation because it's 2021 and i don't think i've heard anything about flint's water for a, i mean i don't even know right. the last time that i i heard mm-hmm. it and so i'm i'm grateful for you uh reminding us because <laughs> i think it is something we need to be aware of because it affected a lot of people and um yeah, yeah so so i want to jump into baptism um even more so because we've obviously kind of been you, you know talking a little bit about it but um when you think of baptism you know I, I like how do you explain baptism because for the for a while here like i feel like we i've come to terms with where my eucharistic theology is like i i guess i mm-hmm. hold to some not quite transubstantiation you know i i <laughs> Calvin, John Calvin's not a very popular fellow these days, but I really identify a lot with the the reformed, um, real spiritual presence perspective. I've been influenced by a lot of uh, Eastern Orthodox theologians, so I think that there is real things happening there. Um, but when it comes to baptism, 
I have a hard time like wrapping my head around what I should be saying. <laughs> um, because yeah. if, if like ontologically, like what is happening in the baptism, I, I, the patristic sources seem to indicate that there's catechesis was highly connected to it. So there should be some sense of discipleship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you uh, account for baptism? I mean, you're, you're like, this is your <laughs> thing. Like, how do you, how do you explain like, what is baptism and how should it happen? Right. And what's God doing there? Yeah. A lot I, know. Um, I know. I just opened up the can of worms for you, but I, I just need you to sort me <laughs> out here. Well, I've, you know, I have yet to develop like the elevator pitch for baptism. Um, so. <laughs> well, now's a good time. So <laughs> I know. Uh, no, I, it's, there is, um, along with Eucharist, it, first of all, it is, um, throughout church history, it has been deeply connected to Eucharist. Mm -hmm. You know, you traditionally, you could not partake of the, the host unless you are baptized. Um, so those two, you know, we've kind of, we've kind of separated them out in, in more recent centuries. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's been a while. Um, but, you know, for a long time, the, the early church, like the, the one led to the other and, and, you know, reading Ambrose, reading um, John uh, Chrysostom, like there, there is that flow. You go into the water, down into the water, you come out, you are anointed, and then you are met by the community at the table. And yeah. it is one continuous flow. I've, I've heard people say it like in a sense of like the front door of the church is baptism and the back door of the church is the Eucharist. Is that, that kind mm -hmm. of that, that concept of one to, you know, first mm -hmm. and, and number two. Yeah. Okay. Keep going. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, that's, um, that actually reminds me of, a uh, one of the things that Kramer did, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> anyway, that's, uh, that's, where I, that's where I remember it from actually. Yeah. From that, oh, from yeah, that, that, makes that sense. circle, those circles. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That makes sense. Um, yeah, because he, I, at one point, um, Cranmer had a very processual um, approach to baptism where you started at the door of mm -hmm. the church and then walked in um, and came to the font. Um, so it is, it, so I think, you know, one, one of the things that we've kind of lost is that, that, um, that process and that ongoingness. Um, Martin Luther in uh, one, you know, some of his work, probably throughout a number of his works, um, his phrase is, remember your baptism, remember your baptism. Um, you know, part of the, the liturgical year allows for multiple places where you can do a service um, where you reaffirm your baptism. Um, mm -hmm. In our church, I'm, our vicar, and she says she stole this from somewhere, she can, can't quite remember where, but... Um, she describes it as walking wet. You know, what does mm. it mean to walk wet in this oh, world? Cool. Mm. Um, so for, you know, to, to describe baptism, um, the way that, that I envision it is, um, and, and just, you know, from the little bit of reading that I've done, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and when you're reading yeah. 2,000 years just of church history. a little bit, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a lot, but it's still I, only a little bit. <laughs> yeah. 
You know, it's it's this invitation to um, deeper participation in the life of the triune God, um, oh. and it is that that ritual moment mm-hmm. where a, a change is made. Um, so, on the one hand, it you know there there is that uh, kind of evangelical intense conversion. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, it is part of a journey and it is part of walking. Mm-hmm. So you are stepping into the water and you always have to remember stepping into the water, like, which if you're baptized as an infant, like, how do you remember your baptism? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but that's part of where the reaffirmation of the baptismal vows can be so, mm-hmm. um, meaningful and so significant. Um, so, okay. I actually, I wrote myself some notes so that I would (laughs) forget to, yeah. Um, so it's, so the event of baptism, you know, it is an event. It's a Trinitarian event, um, Mm. based on the the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan. Um, and, and it's a Trinitarian event that initiates and invites, um, candidates, baptisms, anyone who just desires to follow in Jesus steps to participate in the ongoing work of the Holy spirit throughout the, like in this world on the mm-hmm. earth. Um, and not just, um, and, and so it's, it's this participation, um, and, and, you know, life giving work that is not only, um, uh, cruciform in that, you know, it's, us and God and us and one another, but it takes place in the midst of creation. So there's, um, yeah, there's just a much deeper and and richer context there. So horizontal, vertical, but then also, you know, spatial um, with Mm. with wherever, wherever we are. Um, I love the language of the Cappadocians. They use this in in other early church, um, uh, writers they use this image of a heated iron mm-hmm. uh, so when you know when you're forging the iron put it in the fire um, and it's glowing red so it is one thing but it is both iron and fire mm-hmm. and that's that's how they described um, mm-hmm. baptism and they also and some of that language actually stems from how they were attempting to um, articulate the incarnation at that time as well. Mm. So baptism isn't, it's not only Trinitarian, but it is, you know, at heart, it's incarnational. Yeah. Um, mm. As we are, you know, we as, mm. as earth creatures are actually getting saturated by the spirit and water and moving into divine life moving towards divine life Mm. um and yeah i just i I, you know i've come across that that image before of you know we we are and and a lot of eco theologians are starting to kind of you know revive the the this language that you know we are fundamentally earth creatures yeah 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 Yeah, yeah. i mean it seems like that's kind of like the natural progression from 
you know, like the discovery where embodied souls, right? Like we're moving mm-hmm, into mm-hmm. like, hey, what does that actually mean to be embodied and to have flesh yeah. and to be a part of this creation? Yeah, I, I haven't read a lot of e- eco theologians, but I've read a couple just trying to wrap my head around what in the world is going on <laughs> with that. Uh, and and yeah, it, it seems like that's definitely a natural progression from from what we're what we're seeing. So I, I love what you just said. It's a Trinitarian event that initiates and invites. Like that is, that's really beautiful. So what else? Give me more. I need more. I'm, 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 I, I feel like I, I kind of know what I'm talking about now, but I need, I need more. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so as this Trinitarian event and as this, um, like, you know, more holistic, um, we are uniting with God. We're, we're, um, uh, baptized into a community of, of faith. Um, and, you know, also baptized in water, uniting us with creation. Um, mm. It's, let's see here. Oh no, where was I going with that? <laughs> um, so it's, Sorry, I just completely oh, got derailed. But <laughs> let me um, I, just let me so you know, that's it. what I do. I've got. I'm always like, I got questions. <laughs> no, so yeah, you're talking about being a Trinitarian. So we're united with God, but but also the idea, and this is kind of not ever fleshed out by. Um, well, never is probably in, not true, but not very often fleshed out that uh, amongst evangelical charismatic ish people that we're also being united to, uh, to creation. You know, the fact that we're using a, um, well, an element, (laughs) an earthly element, water. Um, so there's something happening there. That's, that's both the divine and the, the earthly, which is the kind of the incarnational, um, concept you're talking about. So Mm -hmm. how do you, um, so I, I mean, judging by the fact that you're not a Roman Catholic, as far as I know, no. uh, when you, when somebody said, cause I, I heard you talking a lot about how, like, even in the, um, even in the, uh, Episcopalian Anglican world, you know, there's, there's an awareness of, of personal faith and, you know, justification by grace through faith. It's, we're definitely not Catholic in the sense of Roman Catholic. Um, mm-hmm. how do you answer that question of like, how does it connect to salvation? You know, because mm-hmm. I, like, Every every Roman Catholic is very quick to point to First Peter chapter three, uh, and you know the the idea that baptism now saves you. And every Protestant worth his um, or her weight in anything will say <laughs> that it's a expression of faith according to you know. There's that 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 debate. So how do yeah. you wrestle yeah. with 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 the salvific uh, aspect of baptism? Like how does it attach to um, to salvation and, and maybe just to kind of flesh that a little bit, like, cause I think sometimes we have a tendency to break up salvation from like the, you know, um, predestination. If you start there, mm-hmm. uh, to justification, to, uh, sanctification, to glorification. And we maybe mm-hmm. talk about it in those terms rather than seeing the whole process. And so maybe like for my, my way of reconciling that has been to see, that baptism is attached to salvation as an aspect of discipleship and part of that process, but it's less, I don't know. It's less like, um, I, I guess this is where I struggle with how do we talk about it in the salvific way? Cause I don't, I don't think as you just hinted at, it doesn't like, I'm not going to heaven because I was baptized. And I know that going in heaven, <laughs> by the way, is, you know, not what we really believe, but 
you get my point. <laughs> I'm being I'm being pragmatic. <laughs> I know you've read too much Wimber to talk about. That. Yeah, I, I, I also read some of that N.T. Wright guy, and I know that we're not. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. So how do you how do you wrestle with yeah. that? Like, how do you see the connection between baptism and salvation? So I have been finding that when we talk about salvation in terms of healing, um, that it just, it opens up like this whole new set of metaphors and, um, you know, images that we can use and hold on to that are really life-giving. Um, and a, interestingly, so there's a, an, a Catholic uh, liturgical theologian who, who I read, uh, Bruce Morrill, um, he mm-hmm. has talked about, um, you know, salvation in, in these terms, like in, in, the, in terms of like, you know, it's, it, it is healing um, that, and it, that draws us, or relationship with God is mm-hmm. ultimately a healing relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's the, the reconciliation, mm. not because, you know, we're such horrible people and we've, um, and we're just innately like bad. Um, I, I'm not a Calvinist. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not really sure if I am either, uh, these days, but keep going. <laughs> At least I'll never yeah. admit it. I'll, I'll never admit it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know of an eco theologian who draws heavily on Calvin. So, you know, it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. So, um, oh, and I do remember what I was, was thinking of earlier, how baptism is a, a moment, an event and an invitation into new creation. So mm. if it's this threshold that that we pass in, you know, moving towards new creation, then, you know, the healing and the salvation that comes with being united in Christ among community um, and being in communion with the community of creation um, which is a, a phrase that uh, theologian Elizabeth Johnson um, uses quite a bit. Um, that is ultimately like that's a, that's another way of speaking about salvation, where we are are you know it's a, it's a, it's almost that further up and further into the mm-hmm. kingdom of God in such a way that brings about healing and wholeness um, mm. and and works towards justice ultimately, um, mm. you know, as we are walking wet on the earth and, and mm. walking out our baptism. Um, so that, so that sounds to me like, so you, and maybe that, I, I think it feels like a lot of us in our little bubble or circle or whatever, like that's how we're kind of thinking about baptism in the sense of how it connects to a larger framework of salvation rather than trying to identify like where it is in the ordo salutis, as they say. Um, so yeah, that's, that's really helpful. Um, let's talk about household baptisms for a moment. Um, and so my, like when I read the patristics, one of the things that I've, uh, um, you know, discovered is it seems like almost all the primary writings always are attaching it to catechesis. Like, 
you know, mm-hmm. I, I was just joking around with somebody. We're, we're doing baptism services at our church on Easter Sunday as well. So um, I I jokingly was telling somebody about how the early church, there were certain traditions where you had to do the baptism naked on Easter. And I was like, <laughs> like we're not going to be doing that. That's a little weird. Um, <laughs> seems weird. Um, but but I have but I've, I've always seen this, you know, this this really a large emphasis on the catechesis process to prepare and like Lent. I mean, Lent's the whole tradition Mm -hmm. of Lent Mm -hmm. and how that developed, you know, um, preparing, um, getting ready, repenting, going through the process of being discipled and learning about the faith and then getting baptized. Uh, And so there's some um, Baptistic scholars who point that out as being one of the reasons why they have a hard time with household baptisms because um, of the, um, I mean, it's, it's not as exegetically convincing, I would say, you know, for household baptisms. I mean, you could definitely see there's household impact for conversions in the book of Acts, but there's no explicit, uh, right. And so like the argument for um, infant baptism amongst uh, Protestants is it's a covenantal thing that's connected to circumcision in, in mm-hmm. some way. It's a new covenant version of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so my my life, I've been always Baptistic, credo, you shouldn't get baptized until you have some type of conscious uh, conscience, <laughs> uh, conscious decision that you've made. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I've never bought into the age of accountability. It's either nine or 12, I'm told, but I've never bought into that. <laughs> but I have... Um, I read Michael Bird's uh, evangelical theology on baptism, and he makes a very strong case for dual baptism as his approach. And I'm convinced. And I and I and so I'm at a point now where, like, I probably would not encourage somebody to get baptized or to baptize their infant or their child, um, but I would be able to serve in a church community that did it because I do recognize it as a valid tradition um, that. Christians have been doing for a very long time, maybe not in the patristic period, depending on whether or not there's strong <laughs> evidence for that. Uh, but what's your what's your thoughts on household baptism? Um, you know, because you come from um, Presbyterian background, they they do the sprinkling of the babies, and then you hung out around some uh, some <laughs> vineyard charismatic evangelicals where we do not mm-hmm. sprinkle no babies, and now you're at an Episcopalian church where you're back to sprinkling the babies. So. Yeah. Make your case. What, what's your <laughs> thoughts? Where, where are you at? Yeah. Um, well, and so also as part of my own um, story, I've actually been baptized twice, um, okay. kind of unwittingly, because <laughs> I didn't know that I had received baptism as a kid. Um, oh, yeah. They snuck one in. You know. They snuck one in. Yeah. 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 Hey, no, just, just this is funny. I'm just going to show this really quick. My wife grew up in, in a uh, Pentecostal church. Uh, where baptism was uh, I, the the kind way to say it would be they just hadn't really thought about it, okay? Uh, and they would have baptism That's parties <laughs> where her youth group would have <laughs> baptism parties where everybody yeah. would get baptized, and like they might have been baptized five, six, seven, eight times. Everybody decided to <laughs> renew their faith. Which you brought up uh, how in the Anglican world and actually the liturgical calendar. There are these mm-hmm. um, renewing your baptism, which I think that's kind of what they were doing, but they were also undermining their baptismal theology. Just, just dunk again, you know, just more yeah. dunking. Yeah, yeah. So all that is to say is I've heard about you folks who have been baptized a lot of different times. So yeah, so go ahead. I know, I know. So but yours was an accident. Uh, you, you didn't know, so it's, you can't judge you I, too much. Yeah, and 
However, <laughs> my second baptism was while I was on a mission trip in Tijuana. And so, you know, <laughs> why not? I was, why not? I was feeling it. You know, yeah. I was just like, I just feel like I need to, you know, commit myself really again, 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 mm-hmm. again, again. Uh, yeah. And Makes so, sense. you know, that's so, so I have two baptismal waters, um, you know, out here, the Salish Sea. Uh, where I grew up, and then also some Tijuana Reservoir that may or may not still be there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I I don't necessarily hold too closely to um, you can or you can't when it comes to infant baptism. Um, I think what I and, and um, I'm, I'm, I think I, I'm understanding how you're using household baptism here I, I just wanted to make, make sure so you're you're thinking in in terms of like hey we have a family a household and uh or, or like an axe where they would come through and, yeah. and just well just get the whole everybody yeah the art the argument from the for those who are pro baby dunkers <laughs> see i'm even <laughs> revealing that i have a baptistic background here uh would be <laughs> that when the uh like the philippian family, you know, his whole entire family, um, became Christian, you know, they Mm -hmm. were baptized. And so they would say, well, there was obviously there were babies in the household, so they had to have been baptized. And Luke doesn't say that they weren't. So therefore they were, Mm -hmm. and and that's kind of like the, the, you know, the the baptismic baptistic background is always, Mm -hmm. you know, like, well, it's not very convincing because it doesn't say that, um, you know, and I know the argument from silence, blah, blah, blah. But I, I think, you know, amongst, most of the uh, reformed-ish people who would hold to covenantal baptism—it's—it's it's not something you just do to any baby, but it's for households that are mm-hmm. believing. And I think that's probably mm-hmm. um, pretty consistent for the Anglican Communion too, right? Episcopalians would do baptisms for a family that is a part of their congregational life. Um, right. Right. Is that fair? Am I representing yes. that right? Yes. Yeah. So. Um... Yeah, and and a lot of reading that that I've been doing more recently talks about it, how how important it is, you know, if for if you are bringing you know small child or infant to the font, um, then it's the the parents, the godparents who go through a, a kind of catechetical process or at least some you know teaching, some formation. Um, because at that point, you know, you're shifting the language from, um, like the the personal ex- reception responsibility kind of mm-hmm. paradigm to we are communi- communally mm-hmm. we are inviting this child um, to be a part of our community of faith, and you know, then and the vow, um, the baptismal vows, kind of shift uh, language with that mm-hmm. as well. Um, and, and some of this also follows the, um, uh, oh gosh, the RCIA, which, um, Roman Catholics kind mm-hmm. of in, in recent years with the liturgical renewal decided to revamp their, um, they updated, yeah, they updated their, uh, catechism or their, uh, yeah. um, their version of the book of common prayer. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right now, but yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, so they have a whole process around like, you 
know, adult initiation. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think, gosh, um, yeah, I'm really, I think because I lean so heavily towards the processual nature and because, you know, Martin Luther's words just kind of keep resounding, like, remember your baptism, remember your baptism. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I find that um, when, when we place baptism in the larger context of life together, then you know, whether you're baptized at age 18 months, 18 years, 81 years old, like it, that part matters less than the ongoing formation and the ongoing, um, you know, walking wet, um, mm-hmm. if you will, and, and, and walking out of um, the, the commitments. Um, and, and it's also, I think what's also interesting is, the language, um, I mean, I, I, I apologize for constantly re- referring to the, the Book of Common Prayer and like affirmations no, and vows. And no, like. we, we are fans here, uh, the Sacramento Charismatic. <laughs> so I use it every day. No joke. Keep going. Excellent. Um, so I am actually more interested in, you know, really digging into like what are our affirmations. And when we look at, at the liturgy, um, what's, what's really fascinating, and, and this is, this is kind of what has tied on, um, uh, tied into like how I consider myself in, in terms of charismatic, uh, as a charismatic theologian, um, the whole, the whole renunciation and the whole exorcisms, mm-hmm. um, that part is interesting to me. Like, yeah. and you know, for, for child baptism, like, how do you do that? Exercise. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. That's that's a really interesting thing that you bring up because uh, I'm reading. Well, I should say I'm not reading. I'm I'm I have reread and I'm really working through uh, this book. I got a whole bunch of them. I've been giving away the patient ferment. You probably are familiar with it. But he but the author has a whole section on how uh, healing and exorcism and baptism were. Uh, I didn't and I I guess I didn't even realize that until I went back and started reading all these patristic sources and saw that was a big part of getting baptized is that you had to get your mm-hmm. demons exercised out of you. And yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And when you're a baby, I don't know, mate, you know, seems like that <laughs> might be hard to do, but yeah. yeah. So you're kind of wrestling with that, with the implications. That's kind of where I'm at too. It's like, I'm not, I'm not at a point where I'd say, Oh, you naughty people. Um, you know, because I remember I used to tell people all the time when I was pastoring in a, in a community that was very Roman Catholic and very Missouri Synod Lutheran. So lots of baby baptisms and all these Baptist people were freaking out and how evil it was. And I was like, I think most Roman Catholics that I know are basically, they're just doing what they're doing, um, which is uh, essentially what we're doing when we do baby dedications. I mean, they're just wanting their children to grow up, to love God and to be good people. (laughs) Like, I don't think it's a whole lot different, you know? And, um, but yeah, so it's interesting. So you're going to a church now, which ba- uh, practices, um, you know, ch- child Christianings and all those type of things. And so mm-hmm. you're, but you're also charismatic. So that's kind of where you're at right now, ch- ch- trying to work through that a little bit. Is that a safe way to describe that? Um, well, so 
it's it's all fairly organic and it's not it, there, mm. I don't experience a lot of conflict there um in in terms of that um I think too because we we do have a kind of catechetical formation um annual practice um yeah. which we call the the spiritual pilgrimage so every year anyone who attends our church um you know has an opportunity to meet on a weekly basis and we just kind of go over um some of the tenets of the faith and um you know uh let's see here this time around we've been going through the the liturgy itself uh so you know what does it mean to like what does this this baptismal vow mean um yeah to continue in the in the gathering together in the breaking of bread uh taken Mm -hmm. from acts 242 and so when again like when there is that kind of larger context um then there there's i don't know there's sort of a, a softening of you know principles and and or not principles um there's just there's more opportunity to to kind of figure some of this stuff out together. Yeah. Um, oh, that makes a lot of sense. It's it's also really fun at my church because um, I don't know. I, did you ever read Dennis Bennett Nine O'clock in the Morning? Yeah, I mean, if you're charismatic and you have any interest in charismatic history, you have to read Bennett. That's I was told yeah. that at least. So I am I'm at that St. Luke's in Seattle. Oh, Where... so it's a little bit different than your common, uh, okay. Take, yeah, uh, yeah. That, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Like, like you know about the Holy Spirit and stuff. Oh my gosh, the, yeah. there is a wellspring there. And actually, I mean, let, me, uh, let me clarify that because I was very arrogant. I don't mean that uh, Episcopalians and Anglicans don't know about it because they do. <laughs> they just know about it in different ways than your common charismatic. Right. So they, but that that Episcopalian church has not just a really good pneumatology when it comes to creation or scripture or salvation. They also have an awareness of it when it comes to the charismatic stuff too. But not not just awareness. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like where it happened, right? I mean, that's yeah. That's the place. Oh yeah, like some of our little old ladies were like they were there. Um, I think they were, uh, they were they were there when he got fired. Isn't that the story? He like by the second <laughs> service he was like let go or something. Do you, do you know that oh, story? That, I don't. Like oh, when shoot. he became that when he <clears throat> he might not. I don't know if it was at that church because I think that's the church that he served at for a while. But when he first became uh, charismatic and spoke in tongues. You know, it's like the first service he announced it, and he had been fired by the second service. Is like part of Bennett's whole whole story. It's like you can't be. Yeah. Here. you're out of here. No, my so my church is the one that he ended up going to. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Fired, so. Yeah, because they they're like friendly <laughs> yeah. to Charis Max. I I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because um, wow. yeah, I think he he came up from California to Seattle. Um, That's, I thought it was in California where that had happened. It was like on the news, you know, all over the world that there were, you know, the Episcopalians were charismatics and he had spoken in tongues. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so yeah. that is really fascinating. Um, so you're going to have to, we're going to have to do another one of these uh, in the future to talk <laughs> more about that. Cause I, well, I, I, so I have two more things I want to um, talk to you about. Um, there's so many things. It's been so fun talking with you. <laughs> Let's go back to the order of the the sacraments, the two those two primary, mm-hmm. you know, the baptism and communion. Um, I'm I'm like I'm a convinced open open table guy now. Um, 
which I have transitioned into. But as I've read a lot about the second Great Awakening um, and seen how the, you know, and I'm not always a super fan of Finney, so I don't want anybody to take this out of context. But <laughs> it's interesting how the the Eucharist became a evangelistic, missiological, invitational thing. Um, and you know, I remember when I was was when I was starting to explore like sacramental theology. Um, you know, the Roman Catholic position is closed table, very closed table. The Presbyterian world that I came from celebrated um, fencing the table literally and, you know, the whole Eucharistic mm -hmm. coin thing. That was a that was actually talked about quite often. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and so but it, but it also I can see the consistency of it, too, given what you just were talking about, how, you know, mm -hmm. there's a there is definitely a very strong case to be made from church history toward that or proper ordering. Um, and so, but when I, when I came to a more sacramental approach to the Eucharist, it was like, okay, so just to sim simplistically or to, you know, to simplify the whole thing, the bread and the wine are a means of grace and you can encounter Jesus at his table. So I can experience grace and come to know the love of God in a very deep, um, transformative way, and I can know the forgiveness available to me. I can have peace. I can be reminded of reconciliation, all those different themes that are there. Um, my natural question was then, well, why would we not want that for everybody? Like, wouldn't the whole goal as a follower of Jesus to be to like tell everybody about this table and to say, come. Um, so in our, in our church, um, so we, we celebrate the Eucharist every Sunday and, our kind of liturgical way of processing that out is to always say, um, this is a meal that Jesus gave to his followers. Um, but if you're here for the first time or you have never uh, made a decision to follow Jesus, and today you want to make a decision to, to experience grace and to take steps toward Jesus, you are welcome to the table too. So we're a blatantly open table, I guess. But I struggle a little bit with that. So theologically, I'm there. But when it comes to like church history, I feel like I'm going to burn in church history hell, uh, you know, and uh, all the all the all the patristic and matristic fathers and mothers are judging me. Uh, what do you think? Where where are you at? I mean, you might be in trouble with Peter Lombard, um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, True. yeah, I probably think the other um, yeah. reformers. A few, um, a few. Yeah, <laughs> all the Scottish, all the Scottish reformers. Let's be very clear: all the Scottish reformers would be drawing a fence around me and not letting me out. But, but yeah, what, what, what about what are your thoughts but, though? As you've you know, because you you um, you're a sacramentalist. <laughs> whatever that <laughs> is uh you're charismatic yeah. you you see the table as a means of grace it's it's a space to encounter um what what am i missing because yeah. i because i'm really i'm really um like when you talk about catechesis and how that processional that that's the part that gives me a little bit of caution except the way that I, I think I've worked my way around it is going back to what you were kind of hinting at as i see discipleship as a very dynamic thing and how it's it looks different for a lot of people like I, I like to always say it's not one size fits all you know the journey to um, following Jesus sometimes those steps are a little bit different uh, that carried out differently and so 
you know, like the person who might make that first time decision. And we've had that happen. We've had multiple people make a first time decision to follow Jesus at the table. So then from there, it's like immediately I want to say, hey, you need to get plugged into a small group. There's these other mm -hmm. discipleship um, classes that we have. I'd love to have coffee with you every single day for a while and read, read the Bible with, you know, whatever it would be. <laughs> um, so that's kind of how I, I think I, you know, that whole the what the heart wants, the mind justifies. That's how I justify it. All right. But I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I maybe I haven't yeah. thought it out all the way. So what do you think? Yeah. Gosh, um, there, yeah, so many thoughts. Uh, sorry. I guess, you know, my question is that, that I think comes up for me is, um, you know, recognizing just how Jesus lived his life. Um, recognizing too, that the first followers were Jewish, um, basically, <laughs> And, and therefore already part of a religious community um, from which they, mm -hmm. you know, then had to separate themselves um, painfully. Um, so, and, and I think, I think here, and I want to bring baptism and, and Eucharist back into conversation. Mm. So when we are baptized, um, we are you know, baptized into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, Galatians, the, the Galatians text, you know, reminds us that the the borders and boundaries that, that humanity has established are knocked out. Like the dualisms are just like they're they're irrelevant. Um, which is not to say that they're not still there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're just they're just not not relevant. So I, what the sense, the sense that I've kind of been working through is that the 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 community we envision ourselves baptized into, um, that sets a precedent for the community within where where we. Um, eat at the table, um, the community where, where we, we join Jesus at the table. Um, and so it makes a difference if we believe ourselves or, you know, if we, if we conceptualize our, um, that we are baptized in, into a community beyond borders, um, that is our, our baptismal community. So, um, once you're baptized, like you, in a sense, like join all of the other folk who are baptized, whether they look like you or they don't, whether they come from the same socioeconomic background or don't. Um, you know, I've heard one writer describe this as, um, you know, a, a kind of like a border crossing, like um, like at, uh, at the at the Rio um, uh, between U.S. Mexico border. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you are you are crossing um a, a threshold that you can conceptualize it in either a very open way or in a very closed way um and you know the reformers really loved setting up those fences i mean they wanted to like you know it's put true. in the little eyelets and uh make sure yeah. that everything was like nice and sanded um and i'd and 
yeah, I I have a hard time with that. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. And especially when, when you start to con- con- conceptualize like, okay, so if we're not only baptized into a human community, but we are also baptized into the community of creation, mm-hmm. um, what happens then to Aquinas's proverbial mouse who eats mm-hmm. the host? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like how far can we push this? Mm-hmm. You know, and it starts, it starts to, it, for a while as I've kind of worked through these things, like I've, I've really like, I've pushed myself to be honest, mm-hmm. to be honest with um, mm-hmm. some of these, these conversations. Um, I'm not, not yet to the point of Christian animism. That's a whole other conversation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, like what, so if, you know, if we genuinely see Jesus as the sacrament of encounter, Mm-hmm. And we are, um, and, and we follow him into the waters and through the waters, and we cross the Jordan. We like are submersed in our own watersheds. Um, gosh, that's all of a sudden like there are open fields mm. of community, yeah. and mm. why? why not start looking at people very differently and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the other creatures around us very differently. Mm. Um, yeah. That, that, I think that's kind of the, it seems really hard. This is what I think is so fascinating about, you know, the two divergent like Roman Catholic slash anybody who has a real hard line closed table. Um, and then those of us who are in the more open table, it's it's interesting how we both have these sacramental narratives that are shaping us, uh, but they conc- they conclude in like the exact opposite directions, uh, which mm-hmm. I, I feel like a lot of that's based on ecclesiology, um, you know, because that's really where some of the Roman Catholic uh, tradition really is building their their sacramental theology of that. But um, yeah, but I think when when I became more because I like that question of like, well, how many sacraments are there? I think is such an interesting question <laughs> because <laughs> um, like I get, I get the whole, I get the, get, I get the question. I get the question from the ecclesiological marks of the church and things that we can do. But when you start to, pre, uh, when you start to approach um, the world we live in with this sacramental reality, it starts to open up spaces mm-hmm. like, whether the liminal spaces or you know non-liminal spaces, it's you see them as encounter like the God of encounter is is anxious and eager to meet us in in whatever means we are trying to pursue him in. And I, I think when I when I really became convinced of the open table approach, I guess, or whatever, open communion or whatever I am, um, <laughs> it, it, it was like I I saw for me it, what was stacking up was theology, like the theology mm-hmm. of the Eucharist, mm-hmm. the theology of sacrament, the theology of of Jesus's mission too, because it's very remarkable to me about how Jesus carried out his mission. You know, Luke mm-hmm. says in uh, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter seven, I think it's fourteen ish, where you know Jesus himself says, "The Son of Man came eating and drinking," and that was his methodology mm-hmm. of doing mission. Right? It was around the table. Mm-hmm. It was these these places where he didn't have a problem eating with people who weren't on home team. Mm-hmm. They were like mm-hmm. not sure where they were at, and they were they, that's where they encountered God. Um, but it, but it is interesting how 
um, it seems like you, the more sacramental you become, the what I've noticed, if you're not Roman Catholic, the more open table you become. And the more you see all these spaces as being invitational, I guess, in to some degree. Um, so it's interesting. Potentially, potentially. I think it also just... I think it also depends a lot on um, just kind of your own um, uh, cultural background um, mm. because I've, I've met a number of um, like closed table Lutherans and, you know, others who you yeah. would almost expect. Well, that makes sense though, <clears throat> because again, isn't that their ecclesiological, uh, I, I, the ecclesiology is really what I think drives that oftentimes because it depends on which, synod there it with you know the missouri synod and the wisconsin wisconsin synod could not be any more closed in every right, way right. <laughs> like like, like you can't even pray true. together yeah i'm just yeah, like i had, I had a friend true. that was a missouri a missouri synod uh pastor and it was hilarious like we could pray together as long as he wasn't functioning as a pastor and i was like okay so we can pray right now because you're not officially <laughs> being a pastor i i don't understand that um, and that's kind of like the the uh, the uh, arguments from a lot of the Roman Catholic theologians that I know. It's it it seems to like go into their ecclesiology, uh, which mm -hmm. I do think is very much what you're saying. It's like our our background or our ecclesiological frameworks and assumptions, and and then also a, probably a big part of that is our backgrounds and our stories, right? Too like what was compelling to me was yeah. not figuring out who was in or out. What was compelling to me was to figure out that God was anxiously at work trying to draw or was at work drawing people and wanting people mm -hmm. to have a relationship with them. I guess it's more a relational mm -hmm. approach. Um, yeah. So am I, I'm not a heretic, though. Like, I'm I'm still. <laughs> hey, if, if, uh, if you're a heretic, then I'm definitely like. <laughs> you're, you're, I mean, I'm, I'm heretic. Yeah. I'm preaching on a regular basis. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I'm going to somebody's house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's cool. Well, let's let's. Uh, I, first of all, I want to I want to wrap up with one last thing. Um, and I thank you so much for your time. Um, but you you because I, I I want you to end with this if this would be uh, cool. Um, I you had said that baptism, the way you were describing it, was an a trinitarian event that initiates and invites people to participate in the work of the Holy Spirit. It connects them to God. Um, it also connects them to creation. And then you said it's an invitation to new creation. And um, so I've, I was just telling you about before we re started this podcast, I've been um, kind of reworking through um, Wayne Wright's Eucharist and Eschatology, which is a fascinating book. He, he wrote a book called Doxology, which is a systematic theology. But this, this um, Eucharist and eschatology is a really common uh, way of thinking about the Eucharist. Like I, there's tons of books uh, talking about how the Eucharist um, is a, a, um, a sacramental anticipatory event, right? We're looking forward to the marriage supper of the lamb. You know, Jesus, when he instituted this sacrament says, I won't, you know, do this again until I go with you guys in my new kingdom. So we all yeah. look forward to that. Right. Um, but I don't hear a lot of emphasis on baptism through the lens of eschatology. Um, mm -hmm. I, I hear, you know, like I've said, you know, hey, this is a way for us to identify publicly with the death and the, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. But I haven't really thought a whole lot about how it connects us to like personal eschatology as well or eschatology in general. So when you talk about it, how it's an invitation to new creation, 
you're you're like kind of hinting you're you're ha- you're tipping your hat a little bit towards this eschatological approach to baptism. Tell us more about that and how how does baptism connect to eschatology? And for anybody listening, eschatology is right the end times or the last days or the study of end things or whatever. <laughs> you know how would you how would you define it? And and if you wouldn't mind, like flesh that out for us just for a few minutes here. Yeah. So. Um... It's yeah. So baptism as a threshold into new creation mm. um, means that it's a recognition that first of all, when when Jesus was standing in the Jordan River, um, and and just as kind of a, a sidebar, there um, it, the two baptisteries in Ravenna both have these beautiful mosaics that depict um, uh, in the dome. It depicts John, Jesus, and then uh, the Jordan River is, is personified. Um, mm. So there are three figures, um, and and that was very much a part of the language of the early church. Um, that the the River Jordan was a witness to uh, to Jesus's baptism. Um, mm. So when we cross that threshold, um, we are and we're, we're participating in this Trinitarian event that was also an inauguration of new creation. Mm. Because when, you know, Jesus, fully God, fully human on the earth in the Jordan River watershed, that was, that was a, a moment of new creation um, hitting the earth. And, you know, we see that also then, acted out through the healings and through, um, you know, the resurrection of Lazarus. And, um, so, and, and there's also a lot of overlapping language, um, between, uh, like Isaiah and, um, uh, then, you know, who, who Jesus is and, and, um, John the Baptist as, as Elijah. So there's, there are these, um, yeah, they're the, just these scriptural glimpses of, you know, the way that that we understand Jesus fulfilling the work of God, um, and and that also then you know informs our our eschatological uh, in approaches and interpretations of, you know, God here um, now and not yet, <laughs> the, the the kingdom of God now and not yet. Um, so. When we are walking out our baptism and walking out our baptismal journey, it is it is very much uh, in this Holy Spirit power of new creation, God willing, on our better days, mm-hmm. um, where we, you know, where where we're stepping into um, the the reality of Jesus having come. And, you know, coming again and at some point um, and that and, and not so much the earth is going to be going away at some point, but at some point, um, the reign of God taking shape and taking complete form throughout creation, throughout the cosmos, even mm. like that. So if that is the eschatological vision that. Um, that we are always moving towards the the, the coming reign of God to um, 
I mean, you know, what happens if, if you actually use some baptismal language and envision the, the reign of God as, as a wellspring, as like, you know, suddenly like welling up, um, mm. like turning bitter water to sweet, um, mm. you know, maybe even starting to, I, I don't know, would we go to a flood? Can, can we, mm. like, God promised that, that God would not flood the earth again in the mm. same way. But, you know, what, what if that, that eschatological um, vision actually includes, um, mm. so one of the, the writers who, who I follow quite a bit, Chad Myers, um, let's see here, I have a book too. Yeah, um, show them. <laughs> Link will be in the description. <laughs> <laughs> so Chad Myers Watershed. wrote Watershed Discipleship. And in one of his other articles, he describes redemption as rehydration. Mm. And that, Ooh, I'm, that's good. I'm still working on that one. I'm still chewing on that one. Yeah, that's, that's, a, so good. <laughs> that's, that's good. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So wow. that's in a nutshell. <laughs> oh, that's, that's great. Um, oh, wow. This is, this has been such a, such a pleasure, uh, talking about this with you. Um, yeah, I, I feel like every time I try to wrap my head around baptism, I just have a lot more questions every time, every time, but I'm also really looking forward to, uh, reading more work, uh, that you'll have coming out. So when do we get to call you doctor? What, what, how much longer you got? Oh, 20 man. years, 30. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, with God's help, I have a six month writing plan um right. yeah with god's <laughs> yeah well we'll be, well i mean that's something so, we can be praying for i think the work you're doing is really important <laughs> um you know and so we'll we'll definitely be doing that and i really would love to we need i'll i will email you again we will set up another conversation <laughs> if you're willing because i would love yeah. to dive into uh some more thinking about ex, uh, exorcism and baptism and and I just would love to hear your thoughts on that. So for anybody mm -hmm. uh, who is interested in following you, you have a website. Um, it's sermonsandbox.blog, sermonsandbox.blog. Mm -hmm. You also contribute to womenintheology.org. And uh, how often do you contribute over there? Do you write on a somewhat regular basis or is it just whenever you actually have a few minutes free from <laughs> dissertating? Um, it's, I, I try to do it quarterly. Um, okay. and I'm, yeah. And my, my blog too tends to just be, you know, my sermons. Uh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> so it's, it's not real frequent. Um, but mm -hmm. it's, yeah, I, I'm then, hoping to, to do a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, that's great. No, I mean, but you're in the middle of, I mean, writing a dissertation, is terrible <laughs> so it's like it's good and bad and and terrible uh it's hard to find extra <laughs> extra time to do anything i remember when i when i finished my uh, when i finished grad school i like literally did not read books for about six months i only read comics i was like i refuse to read anything that will make my brain work um but you're also on instagram yeah. you and your cat uh mm -hmm. so yeah uh, yes. yeah so people can check out uh, the links in the description hey it's been such a pleasure mm -hmm. and honor to have you yeah, on thank you and and, and I, I really do look forward to more of your work and um, would love to have you on again. So thanks for taking the time. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Woo!